You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Commercialized hacking for hire is traced to an Indian firm, but it's probably not an isolated problem. Ransomware shuts down Honda production lines in three continents... Criminals develop and distribute an anti-DDoS tool to help keep the dark web markets responsive and available. Ben Yellen revisits Twitter's flagging or removing the president's tweets. Our guest is Jeremy Otto from The Third Floor. He discusses securing your favorite Hollywood movies during COVID-19. And researchers compile a menu of cyber contraband. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, June 9th, 2020. The University of Toronto's Citizen Lab this morning released a report on a hacker-for-hire operation, Dark Basin, which targeted advocacy groups and journalists, elected and senior government officials, hedge funds, and multiple industries. Dark Basin is said to have been especially interested in U.S. not-for-profits, notably climate change and net neutrality advocates. Among the specific groups targeted are the Rockefeller Family Fund, the Climate Investigation Center, Greenpeace, the Center for International Environmental Law, Oil Change International, Public Citizen, the Conservation Law Foundation, the Union of Concerned Scientists, MNR Strategic Services, and 350.org. There were others in what Citizen Lab calls the same cluster, but the report declined to name them. Citizen Lab says, quote, We found that Dark Basin likely conducted commercial espionage on behalf of their clients against opponents involved in high-profile public events, criminal cases, financial transactions, news stories, and advocacy. End quote. They initially thought Dark Basin might have been a state-sponsored group, but concluded instead that they were hired guns working for one side of a contested legal proceeding advocacy issue or business deal. Citizen Lab says it's been sharing information with Norton LifeLock, whose researchers have been tracking the same outfit under the name of Mercenary Armada. Much of the activity Citizen Lab reports is connected to the climate change campaign marked with hashtag Exxon New, and it was keyed to events surrounding both that advocacy campaign and a New York investigation of ExxonMobil. Email compromise and social engineering with spoofed email and social media accounts were Dark Basin's principal methods. While the targeting of climate change advocacy groups was keyed to events involving ExxonMobil, Citizen Lab is careful to say that it has no evidence that would enable it to identify who hired Dark Basin. 
nor is there much to finger the clients who may have hired Dark Basin to pay attention to campaigners for net neutrality or to short sellers of particular stocks or to energy or financial services companies or simply to high net worth individuals, particularly Eastern European oligarchs. Citizen Lab says Dark Basin is run by a Delhi-based IT and security firm, Beltro-X. Beltro-X's director and owner is Sumit Gupta. According to Citizen Lab, he's the same Sumit Gupta, whom the U.S. attorney for the Northern District of California charged in 2015 with crimes related to a conspiracy to access the email accounts, Skype accounts, and computers of people opposing his co-conspirators in civil lawsuits. Mr. Gupta is still at large in India and apparently still running Beltro-X. The company's website was up and accessible earlier this morning, but as of 1 p.m. Eastern Time, the Beltro-X site had been replaced with an account-suspended page that included advice to contact your hosting provider. We'll pass. It seems clear enough what's going on. Those looking for Beltro-X after this morning clearly have to search elsewhere. The New York Times says U.S. federal prosecutors are investigating the latest Dark Basin capers. Citizen Lab draws this lesson from their research. Large-scale commercialized hacking is a serious and growing criminal sector. The folks in Hollywood who work hard every day producing the movies and TV shows we all love go to great lengths to protect those assets from leaking prematurely. Spoilers can ruin the anticipation for that big movie premiere, and derail expensive marketing efforts. So what happens when the writers, producers, editors, and special effects artists suddenly need to shift to working from home due to COVID-19? Jeremy Otto is director of technology at L.A. pre-visualization firm The Third Floor. We work primarily in feature film. We do commercials as well and uh, video game cinematics. But most of our work really revolves around uh, theatrical movies. And... What we provide is we provide a service called visualization that allows the director and content creators to um, express what's in their brains out into a medium that everybody else can digest and understand. So, I mean, it's my understanding that uh, organizations like yours who do go through extraordinary uh, efforts to make sure that uh, you're not leaking any spoilers about the movies that are coming out. Um, I, I guess my question is, what's happened as you've shifted to working from home, as so many uh, folks have during this COVID-19 situation? Um, you, you know, you no longer have everything protected within your actual facility there. What has that shift been like? Yeah, no, that's a terrific question. So, we go through a lot of security um, audits throughout the year to make sure that we're maintaining a proper level of security so that um, our content is secure. And then COVID-19 happens and it completely changes the landscape. Our plan from the get-go was always keeping the data safe in our four walls, not exposing that out to the edges. So we need to make sure that we could get people into our studio remotely work on it as if they were working there. That way, all of the applications that are stitched together, the way that we've done it, all of our process can can function the way that it normally does. Uh, the first thing that we needed to do was establish a data center presence and get a 10 gig link. Um, the reason why we went to the data center is we checked to see how 
quickly we can get a 10 gig link dropped to our office and it was upwards of three months which obviously wow. wasn't gonna yeah that wasn't gonna do in this situation <laughs> right so right uh I said, okay, well, how do we trim uh, time off of here? And the way to do that is to go to a data center where they have easy access to, to drop in these connections. Using AppGate, it's called a software-defined perimeter, where you actually kind of create this little perimeter around everybody uh, and only provision out the resources that they need. So in our instance, um, we use, we're a predominantly a Windows shop, so we use remote desktop, for some purposes. And then we use a tool called Teradici, which is just really a, a very high performance, high fidelity version of remote desktop. We could think of it mm. that way. So it, it allowed us to really create just a pinhole for them to get in and do what they needed to do and not expose all the other resources that typically we would want to protect um, very closely. That's Jeremy Otto from The Third Floor. Production at Honda plants in Europe, North America, and Japan has been affected by what the company calls a computer disruption, NBC News and others report. Local news reports from the U.S., the U.K., and Canada indicate that Honda facilities in those countries are among those affected. The problems began on Sunday, and Honda is still working to resolve them. A company statement said in part... On Sunday, June 7th, Honda experienced a disruption in its computer network that has caused a loss of connectivity, thus impacting our business operations. We have canceled some production today and are currently assessing the situation. The company is remaining relatively tight-lipped, but Bleeping Computer says that outside observers think they see signs that the incident was a ransomware attack with a variant of Snake, which also goes by ECANS. It's apparently a targeted attack, sample of the malware in VirusTotal seeks to resolve the domain mds.honda.com. If it can't, it terminates without encrypting anything. Here's the latest in a series of fitful attempts at cooperation among criminals, as described this morning by researchers at Digital Shadows. It's a DDoS protection tool, Endgame, no connection to the similarly named security company acquired last October by Elastic NV, Denial-of-service attacks have been a drag on criminal operations for some time, whether they're mounted by underworld competitors or law enforcement agencies. Endgame is a product of collaboration among players in the criminal markets Dread, White House Market, Big Blue Market, and Empire Market. Despite some cartelization, as Trend Micro observes, the underworld remains a low-trust community. In any case, as we'll hear a little later, DDoS attacks are also criminal commodities— they're inexpensive, and since, as Digital Shadows points out, speed and availability are important to dark web markets, it's easy for distributed denial of service to become a problem for the criminal trade. The reactions to Endgame from its clientele have been mostly positive. How the tool will fare remains to be seen, but the fact that it's appeared at all suggests that even a low-trust community can cooperate if self-interest pushes hard enough. And finally, if you're buying commodity cyber contraband a la carte, not that you would, of course, but if you were, or maybe if you were asking for a friend, Privacy Affairs has compiled a representative menu from the dark web. The offerings range from an appetizing morsel of a thousand Spotify plays, which can be had for a buck, 
to an appetizer of 10 to 15,000 DDoS requests per second against an unprotected website for over 24 hours, just $60, to a main course of premium malware at six grand. Consider on the side a Rutgers University student ID, 70 bucks, or perhaps some stolen PayPal account details, $198.56, but some think it worth the price. For dessert, consider a cloned Visa card with PIN, $25. Care to wash it down with a hacked Gmail account? That'll be $155.73. Mal appétit. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Ben, always great to have you back. Good to be with you, Dave. Uh, We got a a bit of follow-up from a listener uh, about uh, something we spoke about recently. Uh, They wrote in and they said, Friday's CyberWire episode talked to the executive order issued regarding social media companies. In this discussion, Ben mentioned one of the president's tweets was flagged for possibly being interpreted for a call for violence. Walking the concept further, if there were multiple flagged or blocked tweets, which could have a normal user restricted or banned, considering the public figure the president is and Twitter being a regularly used method for messaging the public, could Twitter temporarily suspend the president's account for violating the EULA or similar grounds? And what actions might the administration need to take to prevent or reverse any type of actions taken by Twitter, such as restrictions of the account, if they, Twitter, consider tweets harmful, abusive, or a call to violence? So it's a great question. Normally, any other user who was not uh, a head of state or a head of government, if Twitter determined that there was a call to violence, uh, if the tweet was harmful or abusive, it would be taken down, and if the pattern continued, that user would be suspended. 
I know a lot of individuals uh, who have been suspended. I don't know them personally, but I know a lot of individuals. <laughs> See, whose Twitter the circles account, you run in, you get running with some bad boys there, Ben. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, somebody like the actor James Woods uh, was suspended on Twitter for a period of like six months or something for incendiary tweets. So hmm. most people are not immune. Twitter has made a distinction for heads of state and heads of government because of the newsworthiness of all of their statements. Basically, they're saying whether that user, if they are uh, in a position of power, tweet something harmful or abusive uh, or violent, Twitter, as a general policy, will not take that tweet down because it is in the public interest. The public has a right to know what their leaders are saying and what their leaders uh, are thinking. So it it really is an exception to the EULA. And I I honestly think once you attain a certain position of power in the government, it does give you more free reign to post what you want, whether uh, it would otherwise violate the terms of service. Um, And certainly I think our president has, has taken advantage of that exception. Now, suppose Twitter changes their mind. I mean, we've seen some movement from them lately where they've been putting some tags on the president's Twitter post, and they also uh, hid one. They, they made it so you could still see it, but uh, they, they, they hid it as a default. Uh, does the administration itself have any right to action against Twitter as a private company? Uh, no, they do not. I mean, as, the, as far as the law is concerned, um, Twitter can, is, is a private organization. They're not restricting the president's speech. They can really do whatever they want. They can come up with their own terms of service, their own rules on censorship, And as we talked about last week, per Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, at least as the law is right now, they can't be held liable for any of those decisions. It seems to me that despite what Twitter uh, is doing as it relates to the president's posts, it really has no intention of doing what it does for, you know, the other 99.99% of its users, which is to take down posts entirely and suspend users just because I think when the president says it, it's newsworthy, it's in the public interest, you know, so they're willing to put warnings on tweets, uh, but they're not willing to censor them entirely. And I think they've, they've held to that viewpoint pretty strongly. You know, 40 years ago, the uh, Richard Nixon said in an interview that if the president does it, it's not illegal. Um, I think there's some of that logic at, at play here. Um, the president is held to a different standard um, than any other user. You know, you use that word uh, censor, and I think that's a that's a hot uh, topic here. Uh, many people will accuse Twitter of uh, censorship, but uh, strictly from a legal point of view, again, since we're talking about a private company, that that's not how the law works, right? It is certainly not how the law works. Um, you know, the theory is if the president were angry enough at Twitter, in our capitalist system, he could start his own microblogging technology and can make his own rules about censorship. Honestly, would you be really surprised if, if that happens? <laughs> uh, you know, there could be Trump terror or something. Right. Um, you know, and, and Twitter just happens to be the major micro-blogging platform there. It's where the people are, um, mm-hmm. and it's where he can get the most eyeballs. But in terms of what Twitter is allowed to do, they are allowed to manage the content on their website. They are allowed to make these editorial decision uh, decisions as long as they're not violating any other federal law. So, you know, for example, they can't violate the Civil Rights Act by saying we're only going to accept tweets from white users or something like that. But if they're not doing that, then they are a private organization 
and they have the right to police the content and the way they see fit. All right. Well, uh, thanks to our listener for sending in uh, the thoughtful question. And Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dave. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.